This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Uh, my name is Raja Tanas. I'm professor of sociology here at Whitworth University. And uh, first of all, thank you for coming. This is a wonderful crowd. I really appreciate that. We appreciate that. And uh, thank you. I realize that we have members of the Spokane community. A special welcome to you. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Uh, we are grateful to the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, to the speakers and artists lecture series, and to the sociology department for sponsoring this event. Uh, before we begin, uh, we have sign-up sheets here, Core 150. Hannah, can you help me? Have you seen it? Core 150 sheet, anyone? Oh, it's in the back. No, I prefer it to be here. Could you please bring it down here? Uh, Hannah, can you bring it, please? Core 150. We'll, we'll get it here. And also you have sheets for SOC 120 and SOC 238, uh, where Hannah is seating. Make sure you sign up before, before you leave this room this evening. Um, first of all, uh, I would like to ask you if you have a cell phone, please to silence it uh, out of courtesy to each other and to our speaker. And also, uh, if you like what you hear tonight, you would like to learn more about what you're going to hear about tonight. Uh, it, uh, there is a club on campus that is emerging. Uh, it is called the Middle East Club, and it will be doing all kinds of uh, activities, including lectures, uh, food, I understand. And if you have interest, there is a sign-up sheet, and the president of the club, interim president, is uh, Lydia Ng. Lydia, stand up. So if you're interested, uh, just check with, uh, with uh, Lydia and to sign up, give her your contact information. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing the club on campus. This is the first time we're going to have Middle East Club. Uh, last Sunday, just four days ago, last Sunday, September 13, uh, marked the 22nd, 22 years, 22nd anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, the so-called peace process between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The Oslo Accords called for the establishment of two states, one Palestinian and one Israeli. Here we are. 22 years later, there are no two states. There is no negotiation going at the moment, and there is no peace. Here we are this evening for a special treat, really, really special treat. Uh, we have with us Colonel Dr. Chris Bowman. He's an active duty Air Force officer serving as a senior military fellow at the Institute of National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. In 2013-2014, Dr. Bowman worked inside the Israeli-Palestinian peace process as the chief of staff for the senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense during the negotiations led by Secretary, Secretary of State John Kerry. Dr. Bowman's PhD is in international studies from the University of Denver, where his dissertation explored the multi-party mediation to the Palestinian-Israeli peace process. Dr. Bowman is the husband of one and the father of five children, to include the stellar Whitworth student and outdoor enthusiast, Dakota Bowman. <laughs> Hello, Dakota. <laughs> uh, the, the title of, of Dr. Bowman's presentation this evening is Current Israeli, Palestinian, United States, European Union, Political Dynamics Regarding Renewed Negotiations Toward a Two-State Agreement. The format for this evening is to have Dr. Bowman speak to us for about maybe 50 minutes, 45 minutes, uh, after which uh, we're going to have a session for Q&A. So please join me in extending a warm welcome, a Whitworth welcome to Colonel Dr. Chris Bowman.
How are we doing for volume? Are we good? Does it sound right in the back? Got it? Okay, it is truly a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, I love the whole uh, approach that Whitworth takes for dedication of heart and mind. Uh, as you've uh, heard, we have this connection with one of your students, uh, and we came here for the first time to explore this place and just were blown away, frankly, by the atmosphere of it. So it is really a joy and an honor for me to be here with you. Um, as Roger mentioned, uh, I got called uh, into the peace process when Secretary Kerry kicked it off in, in 2013, and um, he really agreed, in essence, to become the Secretary of State with this issue in mind uh, of being able to personally work on that, and he was truly attracted to it. And some folks have asked, you know, what, what's John Kerry's motivation for being involved in the, in the peace process? You know, is he just trying to rack up a Nobel Prize for himself, or what's he doing? Um, and I would offer to you that from personal observation, my own assessment is that he's the real deal, that uh, he really does believe that this is something worth pursuing. Uh, and, and I need to mention that from the, from the outset, that the reason a two-state solution uh, is something that we're striving so hard for is uh, the demographics that are happening in the region. Uh, whether you're pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli or pro-human, which is the category I like to describe to, uh, uh, pro both sides, uh, the solution of a two-state kind of an arrangement is the only thing that will actually make life livable for both sides. It's the only thing that ensures security for Israel. It's the only thing that will allow there to be a democratic and Jewish state of Israel. You can't have both if the demographics continue the way they are and, they, and there's just one state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. It won't work. Um, and if, if Palestinians are going to have anything like sovereignty, anything like security for themselves, the two-state arrangement of some kind is the only thing that works for that. So that's why we're so passionate about this thing and ran after it so hard. Um, okay, so what I want to do to begin is, is to take a, a quick poll of the audience because I'll actually adjust where I'm going based on, on your response to this. So I'm going to offer you four categories about uh, your familiarity with, with kind of the Arab-Israeli conflict in general. Um, I'll give you the four categories first so you know who you're going to vote for. You know, you don't want to vote and you don't know what the rest of the candidates are like, which is going on right now. Um, I won't say anything more about that. Uh, okay, so here's your four categories. So category one is like you're a no-kidding expert in this thing. You live this, breathe this, study this, live in the region, speak the languages, know all the players, all that sort of thing. So kind of the expert category. Category number two would be you're pretty familiar with what's going on. You, you could articulate the competing narratives, the narratives of both sides, um, the Israeli narrative and the Palestinian narrative. You know who the, the uh, players are. You know the politics of the issues. And you kind of follow it on a at least probably weekly basis, the news of what's breaking in the region. So that's kind of category two, the very familiar category. Category three would be kind of familiar. You know, there's stuff going on in the Middle East all the time, and you pay attention to it when it pops up on the news, but, you know, more than that, probably not a lot more familiarity with it. And then category four would be, you know, I just really don't know anything about it at all. I might be able to find it on a map, but I'm not really sure. Uh, okay, so here's your chance to vote. You, don't, you can just look straight ahead. Don't worry about what your neighbors are voting. Um, so if you feel like you're in the expert category, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, category two, very, very familiar with what's going on. Okay, category three, and then category four, I heard there was free food. I'm not even really sure what the event is about. Okay. Okay, I'm going to adjust based on that then. And what I'll do is, is spend a little bit more time up front. So the question on the table right now is this. Uh, administrations historically, when it's their last year in office, are sort of attracted like moths to light, to a flame, and just can't help themselves but try to negotiate an, uh, a two-state agreement or some kind of outcome for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, administration after administration has gone after this. Now, we're going to talk about some details of what's happened so far with the Obama administration of why that may or may not be the case, but the question on the table is, will that happen before the end of the Obama administration? Because we're approaching that last year right now, and that's what we want to take a look at. But before we get there, I want to spend some time laying out uh, what's happened in the past, because otherwise, if you do turn on the news right now, it's kind of like showing up to a movie about three-quarters of the way through. There's a lot of stuff going on, and things seem really important, but you really have no idea what's related to what and why people are doing what they're doing. So without this kind of background context, none of it makes sense. So we'll spend some time on that. Little disclaimer first, though. 
Uh, these are my views and my opinions. I'm not a spokesman for the Department of Defense or the Department of State or the White House, even though I'm a government employee. I'm not speaking for the government. These are my opinions, so it's all my fault. Uh, if anything goes wrong, it's all me, it's not them. Uh, but they're the right opinions to have. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so here's what we'll do. Uh, I want to set the stage, and that's, that we'll spend some time on this, looking literally at the physical layout of the land, the players, uh, what the competing narratives are uh, next, and then uh, spend a little bit of time on is it actually worth doing this peace process thing. Raja mentioned that we've been at this you know, since the Oslo Accords for 22 plus years. Um, you know, is it, is it actually worth doing this thing or not? Uh, and then we'll, we'll get into kind of the political dynamics that are going on right now. A lot has changed even in the last six months. There's been a lot of kind of breaking news and this sort of thing. And then we'll ask this question about where it's going to go. Most speakers come up and they say, I'm going to talk for a little while and then we'll have a little bit of dialogue and they talk for 98% of the time. There's one question and they spend the whole time answering it and it's over, right? Uh, my goal is actually to have some interaction with you all, so I'll try to wrap it in about 45 minutes at the most so that we can have some back and forth give and take and all that. Okay? Fair enough? Everybody going to stay so far? Okay. Here's a topographical map of Israel and Palestine. Um, what you'll notice is that the low-lying areas are here in the coastal plain, the Jezreel Valley, and then the entire Jordan Valley. So up here you have Lake Genesaret, Lake Kinneret, or Sea of Galilee, if you're familiar with that uh, uh, name for it. Jordan River comes south of that. This is the west bank of the Jordan River, which the west bank is named after. Gaza Strip's down here. Golan Heights up in this area as well. This is what we uh, refer to as the state of Israel. Uh, Gaza is no longer occupied, but it is blockaded. Uh, and the west bank is uh, actually occupied by the state of Israel. So just to give you a little flavor for the size, can anybody identify this? That's right, this is North and South Korea. <laughs> okay. Uh, and who knew that Israel is between here and Seattle? It's not true, but size-wise, okay. Uh, size-wise, it's about 250 miles long and only about 70, 75 miles at the widest point. It's not that big an area. The entire population of Washington and Oregon combined, I think, is about 11 million. Uh, there are about 13 million people packed in this space, and there's almost 2 million in Gaza, which makes it one of the most uh, high one of the highest population density areas on the entire planet. Add to that 50% unemployment, and you can see it's not a great recipe for success. Okay, that's what the that's what it looks like size-wise. Here's another picture of the West Bank. Um, this shows the, the areas A, B, and C that were developed as part of the Oslo Accords and the Oslo II Taba Agreement that define these areas. The, they're called A, B, and C. The darker kind of beige area is area A. That's where most of the population centers. And area A is defined as it's uh, Palestinian governance and Palestinian responsibility for security. So it's something closer to an actual sovereign state, kind of. Area B is this lighter color kind of tan surrounding those areas, and that's where you have Palestinian governance, but security is responsibility of the Israelis. And everything else around here is Area C, and that's Israeli governance and Israeli security responsibility. Does that kind of make sense? So areas A, B, and C. When it first started out, Area A was, was down around 1%, 2% of the entire area. So it's expanded slowly, but still, you can see that large portions of the West Bank are not under Palestinian control. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Okay, Bill Vaughn said what I think is one of the fascinating things said about history in all time. He said it might be a good idea that the various countries of the world would occasionally swap history books just to see what other people are doing with the same set of facts. Okay, that is the concept of narrative. It's this idea like worldview. I'm told that I'm supposed to say that in quotes. Worldview. Uh, related to worldview, it's kind of a recursive relationship between the two, but the narrative is what a people kind of tells itself its story is. It's how they describe themselves to themselves and to others on the outside of their people group. Um, it's not myth, it's generally based on truth, but what makes narrative tricky is that you tend to highlight uh, or exaggerate possibly even some parts of a set of facts, and you downplay or even ignore or even deny other parts of a set of facts. And that's where you get kind of these differing interpretations 
these differing uh, uses of sets of facts that people have about a particular area or situation. So that's narrative. So what I want to do at this point is walk through the very basics uh, of what the Israeli narrative is and then the very basics of what the Palestinian narrative is. And you can see pretty quickly where, why this is so difficult to resolve. If you don't understand these narratives and you don't understand how powerful they are, it's impossible to understand why this is such a difficult conflict to find a peace accord for. Okay, so the Israeli narrative, uh, hopefully, you're at Whitworth, hopefully you know the biblical history up to about uh, 70 AD, right? So the land is promised to Abraham, it passes down to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. Uh, they move into Egypt, they move out of Egypt under Moses, promised land, Joshua takes them into the promised land, and this takes us up to about 1500-ish mm, BC. Series of judges rule, uh, and then uh, the people want a king, and so God says, okay, you really want this thing, knock yourselves out, here's Saul, didn't work out so great, uh, but his, his successor then, David and then Solomon, the kingdom reaches kind of the zenith of its power. Uh, its wealth, its influence all comes to this huge crest. And it is the largest area that would incorporate what we now call the state of Israel, Palestine, uh, parts of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, even Iraq and, and Egypt, all are included in this, this concept that you hear of as Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. It's this huge area, not well-defined, but pretty big. Um, that takes us essentially all the way up uh, to when the kingdom splits. So you get a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and it's taken into captivity 722. The southern kingdom of Judah is taken into 586. A small remnant returns under Nehemiah and Ezra about 50-ish years later. But from that point on, say 538-ish, all the way to 70 AD, Israel is constantly occupied by other powers. And they constantly live under you know, this, this, this reign of, of threat, essentially, from a foreign power that they live under that. And of course, it, it uh, comes to a head under the Romans. Uh, Jesus is born under their rule, and he lives under this occupied state. Uh, and, and the Jews rebel against this, and they're essentially uh, kicked out of the land for good for a while in 70 AD. The temple's destroyed and all that. So you're familiar with that biblical history what you may be less familiar with is what happens between 70 AD all the way up to 1880. Uh, for that almost 2,000-year period, um, as Jews are living in the diaspora, uh, the theme of life is that it's just not good. Anti-Semitism is, is really, really strong. Uh, it's, it's, it's worse and better in different times, but for the most part, it's just really, really hard. Life stinks. And of course, that comes to its horrific... Uh, head in the Holocaust in the mid-20th century, as we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more in a second. I want to stick with this date of 1880 for a second, though, and pick up the narrative there. So what happens is, um, oddly enough, the French Revolution, which kind of governmentally changed everything in all of Europe, it also had an impact on, on the Israeli narrative, oddly enough. Um, many secular Jews in Europe desired to be assimilated into the societies in which they lived, the many societies of Europe at this time. Um, but they were, they were obviously having a difficult time doing that because of the strong anti-Semitism, and a lot of it came, frankly, from the church that apparently missed the point about how the Jews really were going to be part of... Well, anyway. Uh, so they, they had this hope that under the French... Uh, regime. This would be now the Third Republic in 1880, where it's liberty, fraternity, equality, you know, everybody can get along in this system, and there's this hope that this actually works. Uh, that, was, that was held by many, but becoming increasingly obvious that it wasn't going to work out the way folks were hoping it would. Jews were continually persecuted, and this guy, Alfred Dreyfus, was uh, a military officer with the French or an officer with the French military. This thing's falling off, isn't it? I was told this is called a Britney mic. I don't want to do a dance or anything because that would be really frightening. Let's see if that'll stay. Okay. Uh, so Alfred Dreyfus was accused of treason. He goes into this trial that lasts for over a decade. He's imprisoned. 
Um, it's shown pretty conclusively, like very conclusively, that he did not do uh, what they said he did, but, it, but they still kept him in prison this whole time. But worse than the way they treated him personally was that outside the courts in Paris, uh, there are, are demonstrations and riots occurring, and people are saying, kill the Jews, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. So this guy, Theodore Herzl, looks at this behavior, and, and he writes a book called Der Judenzei. I forgot to, I put up Pinsker. Pinsker wrote a book called Auto-Emancipation that basically argued that if we, the Jews, are ever going to be free of persecution, we're going to have to emancipate, free ourselves. That was his argument, and his argument affected Herzl. And then when Herzl saw what happened in the Dreyfus Affair, he said this. If France, the bastion of emancipation, progress, and universal socialism, can get caught up in a maelstrom of anti-Semitism and let the Parisian crowd chant, kill the Jews, where can they, the Jews, be safe once again, if not in their own country? Assimilation does not solve the problem because the Gentile world will not allow it, as the Dreyfus Affair has so clearly shown us. So he saw this coming. And this book, Der Judenstadt, of the State of the Jews, uh, became the foundational document of this, this idea that we need to create a home for the Jews where, we, where they can be safe away from all this anti-Semitism because it's not working out anywhere that they are trying to live. This uh, leads to the formation of the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And that then leads to the formation of the World Zionist Organization and the Jewish National Fund. And these two things work together with the, the goal of purchasing land in some place, yet undetermined, that we'll talk about in just a second, so that we can create a state for the Jews to live in. Interestingly enough, neither Herzl nor... Uh, uh, or Pinsker were originally sold on the idea that it needed to be Palestine. There were actually offers on the table to, to make a Jewish home in Argentina uh, and in Kenya. Uh, but uh, be, and because they were, they were not really religious Jews, they didn't, they didn't think that the land of Palestine really was particularly important in that sense. But another group among the World Zionist Organization, this movement called the Lovers of Zion, uh, were much more religiously oriented, and they decided early on that it really needed to be Palestine. But because Herzl was such a strong personal force, they couldn't make any uh, progress with that. But when Herzl passed from the scene in 1904, the World Zionist Organization was then kind of dominated by this Lovers of Zion movement, and that then set the course for Palestine as the destination for the home of the Jewish, Jewish homeland from then forward. So that became the total focus from that point. Okay. Uh, Palestine was, was administered by the Ottoman Empire up through this time. Um, waves of immigration are now occurring because of, of the WZO, the World Zionist Organization, and the influence of Herzl and all that. So these aliyahs, or waves of immigration, are, are moving now. Jews from Europe, in small numbers at first, growing. Uh, into Palestine itself. And at first, as they show up, the Arabs who lived there, because there were Arabs who lived there, uh, the phrase, uh, land without a people for a people without a land, that's attributed to Herzl that he never actually wrote, um, was only about half right. It was a land without a people, but this land, I mean, I'm sorry, it was a people without a land, but this land had a people in it. And there begins the entire conflict. Um, because as the Aliyahs move in, it becomes more clear over time that the aim of the folks coming there is to displace the folks that already live there. And this begins to create some serious discord on the ground. Uh, this is also late 19th century, so the, the ideological struggle between capitalism and socialism is in full swing. Um, Marx is writing and Engels is, is trying to make Marx into a nicer guy. And, and get that word out, and he's responding to the ills of capitalism in London that Dickinson is describing with child labor and virtual slaves that are, that are working in the factories and all that sort of thing. And so this ideological debate has a massive impact on uh, the Zionist movement, and it moves to a characterization of labor Zionism. 
And what that means is that not only do they want Jews to own the land, but they want Jews to work the land. And, and this, this socialist idea of a group of folks uh, living in community, working a piece of land, being relatively self-sufficient and all that sort of thing becomes the core ideology of the Zionist movement at this point. The challenge of that is that if, uh, if in the past the land was bought and sold and bought and sold and the, the peasants that were on the land kind of stayed with the land, now labor Zionism depended on those peasant farmers being moved off the land and Jewish labor replacing that. So as they're being moved off the land and as folks that are coming in are becoming more and more militant about that, uh, there begin to be revolts. And there begins to be violence throughout, uh, throughout Palestine at this point. Okay, so that brings us up to about World War II. I'm sorry, about World War I. And uh, the Ottoman Empire is already the sick man of Europe. It's kind of falling apart, disintegrating and all that. Chooses the wrong side, loses World War I. And so Palestine passes from the Ottoman Empire to a British mandate. So now the British take over. And they own this, this thing in the midst of when all this rioting is going on. Uh, fast forward up to World War II, as I mentioned, the horror of the Holocaust becomes a formative event that accelerates the movement, of course, into uh, Israel. The war ends, 1947, the British Empire is, is crumbling because it's been bled white by two world wars and they say we can't handle this anymore. And in November of, of 47, they announce we're leaving in May of 48. And when they do leave in May of 48, uh, David Ben-Gurion declares this is the state of Israel. And as soon as Ben-Gurion declares that, all the Arab countries around it declared war on the state of Israel that just wanted peace, and they invade. Okay? This is the Israeli narrative of how this, this all went down. Um, there's another side to the story, though, <laughs> as you might guess. So the Palestinian narrative emphasizes this, and you, you've probably seen this, this set of charts before, but I'll show them because it really captures the idea. Um, as I mentioned, the Jewish National Fund and the Jewish, uh, or the World Zionist Organization working together, they purchased large plots of land from largely absentee landlords. Um, so it was a legal transfer of property, as we understand property law in Western Europe. Uh, but again, the issue of where the, whether the peasants go with the land or not had a massive impact on the ground. Beside that point, though, at the end of all that, from 1880 to 1947, after all those purchases that went down, Jews only owned about 6% of this entire land area. Now, I showed you where the Jezreel Valley was, and that's this section right through here, so you can tell it's some of the really fertile land, which is important if you're trying to establish a state. Um, but still, they only owned about 6%, 1947. The United Nations was formed at the end of World War II, as you know, and they, as they usually do, decided to study the problem. I worked for the United Nations for a while. It was a fascinating experience uh, that I can tell you about at another time, but uh, it's a crazy organization. But they decided to study the problem, so they sent in the United Nations uh, Special Committee on Palestine, UNSCOP, to, to go in and look at this thing. All the riots are happening, and they write a report, and they recommend partition. So at this point... Jewish holdings go from about 6% to about 56% overnight. So the leaders of the Jewish community, of course, said, where do we sign? We're in. And the Arabs said, not only no, but no, uh, we don't want any part of this, of course, because why would we give away 50% of our state for, for no gain whatsoever, Right? As I mentioned, the Brits said, we're leaving. They made the announcement in November of 47, and in May of 48, they pulled out. The Jewish narrative is that we declared our state, and we were attacked by all the armies around us. What started to happen, though, in 1947 is, is even though this is now on some map hanging at the United Nations, the reality on the ground hasn't changed one iota, right? So there are 860,000 Arabs living in what's now suddenly the Jewish sector. So the leader of the Jewish community decide, get together and decide that what we need to do is we need to accelerate this process. 
and, and honestly, there's nothing else to call it but ethnic cleansing. They, they ethnically cleansed this entire area. Now remember, we're coming out of World War II. We're coming out again of the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, Arabs in Palestine, their position was, look, that was horrible, but it's not our fault. You know, it should be the Germans that are paying the price for this, not us. Nonetheless, Arabs on the ground also know that the Jews coming in have uh, quite a score to settle. And so a very few, but heinous, massacres, uh, one in particular, Derishin, where about 250 men, women, and children are just slaughtered. Um, that word gets out, and so when the Jewish Haganah and the Irgun and the Stern Gang, their military arms, when they show up, they they would say, you know, remember Derisin, and people just fled. And so about 750,000 Arabs left this area between 1947 and about 1949. In 1948, the reason that the states around them didn't suddenly come in and right this wrong was because, if you remember, the Brits were still in place. And even though the UK had been bled white and the empire was crumbling, they were still the most potent military force around and the Arab armies in the countries around it couldn't really do anything about it. As soon as the Brits are out of the way, then of course they want to go and they want to right this wrong of the ethnic cleansing that's happening. Unfortunately, though, they're very poorly led, they're very poorly equipped, relatively speaking, and arms had been flowing into uh, what would become Israel very shortly from World War II, because during World War II, there's arms going everywhere, and entire shiploads of stuff is just sort of a footnote on somebody's ledger. So even though it's a very fledgling army, very fledgling nation, the Jews are much better organized. They actually had combat experience during World War II, and they're able to defeat the armies around them. And so they declare these armistice lines. So you'll hear, you'll hear the armistice lines of 1949. You'll hear of Green Line Israel. You'll hear of the pre-1967 lines. They're all the same lines. Okay, these are the lines. So they drew up a line around Gaza, and this line that goes all the way around the West Bank. This now becomes uh, Palestinian territory, actually connected to Jordan administratively. Gaza initially is, is essentially connected to Egypt. But these borders form what, when we talk about negotiations today, we talk about the 67 lines. That's what these are. Now, this isn't the final reality, though, because as I showed you in area A, B, and C, you notice that this represents areas A and B together, and it's just kind of an archipelago of areas. They're not connected. And oh, by the way, to get from here to here to here to here to here, you have to pass through a whole series of checkpoints. Uh, if you're trying to deliver fruit, you can't even take your truck across. You've got you've to offload from one truck, unload to the next truck. You may sit in the line for you know, hours, days, uh, your produce goes bad, uh, and it's just this constant system of harassment. You can't make a state out of that, is the, is the summary of that story. But as you look at this picture from here to here to here to here, this shrinking state, shrinking territory of Palestine, that encompasses in many ways, that picture encompasses the Palestinian narrative. Does that make sense? When you put these two things together, um, the horrors of anti-Semitism for literally thousands of years culminating in the death of six million people on purpose. And you combine that with the narrative of the shrinking territory of Palestine, you begin to get a sense of why this is so difficult to resolve. Because if you if you give up any piece of your narrative, any piece of your paradigm, your worldview, or whatever, you're not only betraying sort of your, your intellectual commitment to that paradigm, you're in a sense committing this injustice to everybody that went before you and was either cleansed out of an area or your ancestors that were killed in gas chambers. Um, and and you're, you're giving up a lot more than just, well, just sign on the dotted line, everything will be okay. Okay, that's what makes this whole thing so crazy difficult. And along the way, the emotions are stirred even more because of events like this. Um, 
throughout history, if you have a, a much stronger power up against a much weaker power, the weaker power will resort to asymmetric warfare, which is a fancy way of just saying terrorism, essentially. Because it's all you can do. If, if you're the weaker power and you amass in a base, guess what's, what that's called? It's called a target, right? And we drop bombs on that and it goes away. So you can't do that. You have to disperse and you have to hide. That doesn't mean I in any way endorse terrorism. I reject it wholeheartedly in every way. But the human toll that this creates um, is, the, is the story I want you to not just hear but feel. So in 2006, I had dinner with a family uh, in Haifa. And three years prior to that, in 2003, uh, there... 14-year-old daughter at the time was coming home from school, and in Israel you typically take public buses to go back and forth to school, and she never made it home because she was blown up in a bus just like this. And, and sitting in that family's home, having dinner with them and just hearing the stories, and you multiply that kind of by all the seats in the bus, um, there's a human dimension to this that is that takes all the narratives and just multiplies them and multiplies them and multiplies them. And it's, and it's just horrific. And it's like this in every place. So through the 90s, there's two, three, four of these every year. You, you can just sort of imagine what would it be like if two or three or four buses blew up like this in, in New York or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco. In, in the 2000s, during the second intifada, uh, in 2000 itself, I think there were 40. In 2002, there were like 47. So almost one a week, a bus or a cafe is blowing up like this. This is 2014. This is a house in southern Israel that was hit by a rocket launched out of Gaza. And again, it's horrific. This is, this is a human price that's paid for these things. But I would argue that this is on a different scale than that. This is Gaza. This is the Israeli response to that. Um, we worked directly with the Israeli security forces and the Palestinian uh, security forces together trying to solve this issue of how do you bring security without making the problem worse. And Israeli military doctrine is if we're hit with one bomb, we respond with 10. It's this, this doctrine of overwhelming response because that will discourage people from hitting them in the first place. That's how they see the world. Uh, they'll say, you know, the only thing the Arabs understand is force. Well, that may be true on some level somewhere, but the problem is, as you might imagine, this is going to generate a whole bunch more terrorists, right? People who lost their families, people who, uh, who were injured in this, uh, they just don't go, okay, you're right, it'll be fine, I, I give up. Right? The narrative goes deeper, it, goes, uh, it becomes stronger, and it just creates the next generation of terrorists and bombers and everything else. Okay, a word about uh, peace processes in general. There's kind of two views to this. View one is this, that incrementally as you deal with these issues over time, you're able to talk about things now that you couldn't talk about in 1993. I mean, it was absolutely anathema to say anything about dividing Jerusalem. In 1993, you literally couldn't say it without people quite literally ripping their clothes, standing up, running out of the room. Um, but as we, we work on the issues and we talk about the issues, now you can talk about things like making the capital, perhaps, in East Jerusalem for the Palestinians. You can talk about uh, where borders are going to be that you used to not even be able to mention them. Um, and Winston Churchill's famous for saying it's better to jaw jaw than to war war because of the human dimension we just talk about, talked about. Uh, and there's also a notion out there that if there is an active negotiation going on, it, it gives just a little bit of hope that prevents the third intifada from breaking out. And by the way, just in the last couple of days, the tension in Jerusalem is rising. There's more rocks being thrown. The prime minister is asking for permission to have snipers shoot rock throwers. Uh, it's, it's ratcheting up once again. But if there's a negotiation going on, it gives just a semblance of hope that maybe keeps the lid on the place. 
there's a second view, though, and that is that, and this is a little bit about what Raja was referring to, is that 22, 23 years after the signing of the Oslo Accords, essentially it's still the same. Except, instead of being about 140,000 settlers in the West Bank, there's now over 350-some-odd thousand. Most of them are in East Jerusalem, but they're spread out throughout the entire West Bank. Uh, and these folks will roll in in the middle of the night, set up on a hilltop. They call them the hilltop settlers. These are the really radical ones uh, with a generator and a few trailers. And they'll declare, this is now a Jewish settlement. And the Palestinian farmers that live there, oh, so sorry, you need to leave now. And, and it's easy to identify these guys um, because they typically have the the yarmulke, long beard, Western clothes, not the ultra-Orthodox with the black uh, clothing and all that, Western clothes, and submachine guns. That's kind of the giveaway, because they're allowed to carry machine guns, and Palestinians aren't allowed to have arms. And so they use those to encourage folks to depart from the area. So this, this idea that this process is actually just a big deception, allowing more and more land, more of that narrative to continue, uh, is a second view of this. Okay, so Israeli political dynamics. What's going on in Israel itself? Back in uh, the springtime, there was an election in Israel, and if you if you didn't catch this, um, Isaac Herzog and Zippy Libni formed a coalition kind of on the left-ish. Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister, who's been the prime minister for a long, long time, represented the right, and... Uh, Livni, uh, the, the left wing essentially, was pretty far behind in the polls for most of the months leading up to the election. But at the last kind of last few days, they suddenly started catching up in the polls. And it looked like uh, the two of them were going to actually beat Netanyahu when the elections happened, like two or, or three days before the election. So Netanyahu came out, and he made some fairly interesting statements. Uh, the first one is, is listed up there, basically saying that this left-wing uh, position that you Israelis are about to elect is going to become a platform for terrorism that's going to launch nothing but bad and evil on the state of Israel if you bring them in. And the scare tactics worked, things reversed, and Netanyahu was re-elected kind of at the last second. We're going to get to the, the, the U.S. reaction to this in just a second, um, but suffice it to say that the U.S. administration was not exactly pleased with this kind of rhetoric. U.S. policy standing going back decades now is that settlements are illegal, that there needs to be a two-state agreement, and that uh, we have to find a way forward in this thing, and we are never, we the U.S., are never going to approve uh, purposely settling the land of the West Bank. That's our government policy and has been for a long time. Netanyahu immediately after he won tried to kind of walk back his statements and, you know, well, I was just kidding. I didn't really mean it, whatever. But uh, our president at that point essentially just had had it with Netanyahu. Um, and the relationship is, is the worst that it's been at the executive level for as long as, as anybody can remember, really all the way back to the founding of the state. The 34th government that came in that's sitting right now is definitely the most right-wing government ever. Uh, the settler movement has strong ties in it through uh, Israeli Betenu, which is it's the Jewish home party led by a guy named Neftali Bennett, and he is a, a raging uh, one-stater. He never really answers the question about, well, what are you going to do about the people living there now? Um, honestly, I think that if they had their, their way, the, the Jewish home and parties like that, they just hope they go away, and that'll solve the problem. It's probably not likely, but that's, what, that's, that's all the answer that they have. Uh, it's, it's a um, parliamentary system in Israel, so you form coalitions after the elections, and based on the number of seats that you won, uh, you try to cobble together a majority of the 120 seats, so you get 61 together, and that becomes your government. They're incredibly fragile, and they're more fragile now than they've ever been. Uh, and, and this may lead to something that we'll talk about at the end here. Uh, allegedly, Netanyahu invited uh, President Abbas 
to start negotiations right away, but of course the boss was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, Moshe alone, Minister of Defense, said there's really uh, not anything bad about what's going on. He said there is no humanitarian distress in Gaza. Um, if that were my living room, I think I would call that distress. Um, now, he did say, and this, this probably makes sense, he said if they, were, if they would decide to export strawberries from Gaza instead of rockets, the situation would be entirely different. That's true, but you have to think about how do your policies affect the folks on the ground, right? So Israeli security leaders really are in a bit of a dilemma about how do we make sure that terrorists aren't launching rockets from Gaza, um, but at the same time not create the next generation that's going to come behind it. Palestinian political dynamics, Mahmoud Abbas is in his 80s. Frankly, he's tired. He's been doing this for a long time. And as is often the case within the PLO, the PA, uh, there's no obvious successor for who's supposed to take over after him. Arafat was a master at, at keeping kind of his lieutenants sort of vying for power among each other. Uh, and Abbas has kind of done the same thing, unfortunately. So it's not clear who would take over when he goes. Um, he's threatened many times to hand over the keys to the West Bank. The way it works right now is that the security forces of Israel and the security forces of the Palestinian Authority actually work very closely together. And it's to the benefit of both states because uh, the Palestinian Authority is fairly fragile. And if Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad or now the Islamic State, were to penetrate very far into the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority could lose control very, very quickly. So the Palestinian security forces work hand in glove with the Israeli security forces to keep that from happening. That puts Palestinian security forces, leaders, and troops for that matter, in a really difficult position because they're enforcing this security regime on their own people. And they have a really difficult time dealing with that sometimes. Um, there's also this thing happening called the, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Movement. It's modeled on what happened in South Africa uh, and got rid of the apartheid regime there back in the early 90s. Um, they're trying to, to uh, gain some uh, momentum with this thing. Um, but this idea of handing over the keys in conjunction with this is that instead of doing the security cooperation, President Abbas is like, okay, Mr. Netanyahu, you take over this thing and you have responsibility for this entire mess. We're not gonna do it for you anymore. You figure it out. So in a sense, Israel has been able to occupy the West Bank on the cheap because the Palestinians are paying the price for the day-to-day -day operations of it. Um, and I mentioned the violence that's increasing. Can you feel the love? Um, this is Federica Mogherini. She's the foreign policy and security chief of the European Union. Um, and the European Union in general Federica in particular, and France in particular, have been pushing very, very hard within the UN Security Council and other places like that for a solution to be put into place. Um, and I was not very happy about that, as you can imagine. Uh, this is the French uh, foreign minister, uh, and, and he too has been pushing really hard for this. This, just in the last couple of days, uh, looks like it's changing in the sense uh, they were, the French were pushing for this, and we, the U.S., said, you know what, just hold on. Let us deal with this Iran deal first. And when we wrap up the Iran thing, which is now pretty much wrapped up, uh, we'll come back to this issue. In the meantime, the French have said, I don't think we're going to push that much harder in the Security Council. I think we're on the verge of just declaring that we recognize the state of Palestine. And if that were to happen, that would set in, in motion a chain of dominoes that would have pretty devastating effects diplomatically as far as Israel is concerned. Um, within the United States, I mentioned how difficult the relationship is between Obama and Netanyahu. Um, it's worse than it's ever been. Uh, when, when Netanyahu came here two weeks before his election and spoke to a joint session of Congress at the invitation of our speaker, uh, and not at the invitation of the president, which is not how you do things in DC, uh, that created some serious, serious disconnect. And then you add to that the shenanigans over the summer of trying to derail uh, the Iranian uh, joint agreement. Um, some really, really bad blood was created. And for the first time in anybody's memory, Israel is now a partisan issue. Not completely, but partially. It used to be that 
Uh, if you are if you're in the Democratic Party, there's a very strong Jewish presence within the Democratic Party, so you supported Israel. If you're in the Republican Party, there's a very strong presence of, among Christian Zionists and others that's, that, that say yes to Israel. So whichever party you're in, Israel gets the pass. Um, for the first time ever, there's now tension on that. And there's disagreement in the camp about how much we should support Israel. And a lot of folks within Israel are really upset at Netanyahu for essentially creating that situation. And Obama came out and publicly said, you know what, if this thing does come to a vote in the Security Council, we may not exercise our veto this time. Uh, if you're not aware, there's been more UN Security Council vetoes cast by the United States on behalf of Israel than all other vetoes by all other players on all other issues combined. Okay, so we protect Israel. We have Israel's back in the United Nations. And for the first time, the president's saying we may not do that this time. Um, and as I mentioned with the Iran nuclear stuff, this is almost complete. So where does this all go? Um, part of my dissertation research was on, on this idea of turning points in negotiations and what, create the, what creates the conditions for peace processes to, to move forward. Um, and you need these precipitant events uh, to happen that change issues on the ground. Right now, it's stuck. Since 2014, uh, when Israel and Hamas went back to war and exchanged rockets and all that kind of thing, it's been stuck. And the Iran deal has kind of held things in place. The question now is, in this last year of the Obama administration, will they give it one more shot? I think Kerry has it in him. I think the president will let it happen. But the key is what happens within Israeli politics. If things stay the same in Israel, it's unlikely to go forward. But because Netanyahu's coalition is so fragile right now, if there were to be a rupture in that government and they had to go back to the polls, so to speak, that completely rearranges the deck chairs for that whole deal. And if that were to happen in a timely manner, like say before November, December or so, I think the administration would probably give it one more shot. Um, but short of that, it's not looking really likely. So I'll stop there. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your questions, and we'll just kind of dialogue on this thing for a few minutes, and you can go do more homework. Hi, uh, my name is James. Uh, it's my loose understanding that there is the beginnings of a movement among Palestinian youth where they favor a one-state solution because either they've kind of given up hope on a two-state solution or they think that they just have a better chance working the system from the inside. Right. Do you think that there's any merit to that belief, that there is a movement there? And if so, how do you think that will affect the dialogue as that youth comes into power in Palestine? That's a great question. Uh, the answer is yes, it is actually happening. Um, the thought behind it is that if we do declare one state, again, kind of between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, that that de facto means that there has to be uh, recognition that we have, we Palestinians have political rights, right? Because otherwise you literally are immediately in this apartheid situation. Um, right now the population of Israel itself is about 8 million. 6 million are Jews, 2 million are non-Jews, mostly Muslim Arabs, Christian Arabs, and Druze. Um, there's another th uh, almost 2 million in Gaza, 99 plus percent Muslim Arabs, and then in the West Bank, you know, another three million or so plus the 300,000 settlers. So you mix all that math together, where you get is that there's already slightly more non-Jews than Jews in that, in that area. So uh, the youth have said, you know what, you know, our, our forebears have been doing this for 22 plus years and it's not working, give us our state and give us our voting rights immediately. Um, I mentioned the thing about Abbas threatening to give back the keys. That's the manifestation of that, that belief. It hasn't happened yet for real, uh, but some folks think it might be sooner than later. And if that happens, all bets are off. I mean, if they know kidding, if the Palestinian security forces today said, we're not working with Israeli security forces anymore, you guys figure it out, it will instantly be a complete disaster zone. I mean, like that. So it, there is very great merit to that. Yes, ma'am. 
Um, so you mentioned that this two-state process, peace process, happens generally when um, a president is coming up to their last term. Um, do you think that it has progressed over the years, despite it only coming up only every four, eight years? And um, if it doesn't happen in the next year before Obama leaves office, do you think that it will continue when the new president comes into office, or will it wait until their last term? Almost every president has come in saying, I am not going to get near this because it's quicksand. Uh, and then they get sucked into it later. Um, the Obama administration was actually different in that it came into office saying, we're going to tackle this right away. Um, and he gave the speech in Cairo and essentially apologized to the Muslim world. Um, very different tone in many ways from the George W. Bush administration. Um, if a Republican is voted into office in the fall, it will, it will almost certainly be stalled. Um, if a Democrat comes into office in the fall, 50-50, whether it resumes. Most likely it would be kicked down the road a little bit, but hard to tell. Not a very satisfying answer, but it's projecting the future, which is fairly difficult. Who else? Here. Yes, sir. How strategic is Israel as a military toehold for the United States at this point in time? How strategic, it, is, as in, is it, a, is it a strategic asset for us? Yes. Touch me. Hmm. Um, a lot of, is made of the argument that uh, we are the only democracy, we, we are the only source of stability in this incredibly turbulent region. Right? We share the same values and all that. Um, that's true, but we don't operate out of Israeli bases to do anything in the Middle East. We operate out of Jordan. Uh, we're back in Iraq, unfortunately. Um, we operate in, throughout the Gulf and all that sort of thing. So do we strategically need Israel to do what we are trying to do militarily? No, we don't. Um, does that have any impact on our strategic relationship with Israel? Not really. It doesn't because the, the ties that bind, so to speak, are so strong politically. The ones I described before um, and uh, uh, just the, the military to military relationships that we have with them, even though we don't need it. Um, we give $3 billion a year to Israel that has a GDP of $32,000 a year, one of the highest in the world. Um, and they are our highest recipient of foreign military aid. Uh, number two is Egypt, because we've put that together to, to bring the uh, Egyptian-Israeli uh, peace accord together. That's what holds it together. But do we need it strategically? We really don't. People don't like to hear that, but that's kind of how it works. Who else? Uh, yes. you, you mentioned earlier that um, the... The government of Palestinian West Bank was sort of overseen by Jordan up until 1967 with the Six-Day War and all that. Yep. Um, I was wondering what the current involvement of uh, Jordan's government in Palestine is, and if a future sort of incorporation into Jordan would be a possible solution. People have proposed that. Um, there's, there's essentially, I mean, there's a relationship between the two, but there's no official governance kind of relationship between the two at all. Right now, when we were running back and forth over there, one of our many stops on almost every trip was in Jordan to talk with the king and the leaders of, of the security forces there. Um, again, like the Palestinian security forces, Jordanian security forces work pretty hand-in-hand -hand with Israel as well. And you notice everything is very quiet. You know, the Jordan Valley is a very quiet place where Jordanians send their military officers to kind of take a breather, as opposed to the other borders, which are not quite so, you know, relaxed. Um, so that proposal has been out there. Uh, no one is, is really running with that, including the Jordanians. The Jordanians are very uh, sensitive about you know, how much they're seen to aid and abet Israel as a state. Um, the vast majority of the population of, of Jordan are Palestinians you know, that left during that, that exodus. Um, so the king has kind of a difficult job keeping all that together. Um, no one has, has, is really pursuing that right now, though. Does that answer your question? What else? Yes, ma'am. So if, we, if the United States is condemning settlements, saying we don't believe that settlement is okay, 
it's illegal. Are we just paying verbal, are we just saying that verbally or are we doing anything? Because if we're sending that much military aid, we're telling them, don't do this. Now here's a couple billion dollars, enjoy it. it. Yeah, yeah. What, are we doing anything or are we just saying we condemn this but we're not gonna back up that in any way? So that's a, that's a great question. Um, the Obama administration has come down harder on that than any administration prior. Um, they opened, it was a little bit clumsy, but they essentially opened with, you need to stop that, you need to do it right now, and they said it very publicly, and so it became kind of a, a gauntlet that was thrown down early. Because of the momentum of politics in Israel and the way the coalitions work and all that sort of thing, you can't turn that ship on a dime, even though you think you could, you can't, it just doesn't work that way, and so it it essentially created a rift that probably could have been handled a little bit more delicately, made the same point, given them kind of a, a, a period of deceleration, um, but it just created a, a really negative relationship. We were talking about this just before the time. Um, created a really negative start to the whole thing. Um, so mostly what we do is we condemn, we say you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, and then we hand them the check. Sadly. Who else? You get your exercise this evening, running up and down. Yes, ma'am. Um, so you mentioned how you're negotiating for a two-state solution. Um, and I was just wondering, what would the physical boundaries look like? Would they be the green lines? Um, and then also, would there be any um, allowances for like refugees um, to return to Israel at all? That's a great question. So. What we have put on the table, actually I'll use this, um, is that the 1967 lines will be the basis, but that there will be equal percent and equal value land swaps back and forth if needed. So what's happened is there are, uh, much of this land now is down here not very useful, it's just kind of desert wasteland. And that is true of some of the southern areas around the West Bank. So the idea in the past was, okay, we'll do these land swaps, and guess what? Israel ends up with all the good land, and Palestine gets this kind of not great uh, land in return. So the equal value land now is, is placed into the equation. So this becomes the basis, and this is what they've been trying to get, uh, essentially, the Israeli government and the Palestinian government to sign up and say, yes, we will make this the basis, and then equal land swaps after that. David Makovsky at uh, Near East Institute has done some really detailed map work and actually pulled him onto Kerry's team uh, to put some of that stuff on the table. Um, so it's all very codified. All the stuff, whether it's settlements or refugees or borders or security or Jerusalem, we kind of know what it's going to look like. The difficulty is not figuring it out. The difficulty is getting the political will from the leaders of both countries because of the the competing narratives to step up and say, okay, I'm going to lead my people to this solution. Jerusalem is, is, is probably the most difficult thing of all the issues. Um, essentially, what, what has happened, go to this next map here. It's not, it's back this way. It's not real detailed on this, but it gives you an idea. This area in red right here uh, is all basically settler housing. So that, that is the West Bank proper, but it is now a whole series of Jewish neighborhoods. Um, what they're talking about is making even further east, over here, East Jerusalem, the capital of the Palestinian state, leave the rest of, they won't call it West Jerusalem, but leave Jerusalem itself as the capital of the Jewish state uh, and divide it. Essentially, the Jewish neighborhoods go to Israel, the Arab neighborhoods go to Palestine. What happened to them? The way that this is designed, if you notice this, these, these black areas right here, this whole black line is the route of the separation barrier, otherwise known as the apartheid fence. It's got all kinds of names like that. But um, what it does is physically separate the West Bank uh, from Israel itself so that those bus bombs that were happening don't happen. And they don't anymore. In a sense, it worked. Uh, 
and the international community doesn't have an issue with the separation wall itself. What it has an issue with is the route. And so if you look in many places like this, it cuts way into what's supposed to be the West Bank, all the way around like this. And so everything to the left, to the west of that wall is essentially being annexed into Israel, right? So those now have to be part of the equal uh, land swaps that are given back to the West Bank if they're gonna annex that. The settlements themselves, the major ones run along this route right here, up behind, uh, around Nablus and Kalkivia, uh, and Salfit in this area here, and then obviously all around Jerusalem itself. So this, the, the maps that these guys drew up basically make this now part of Israel. The deep settlements that are out in here will be evacuated, just like Gaza was in 2005. Um, but a lot of this territory will become part of Israel, and then the West Bank will get land around it, again, that supposedly has equal value. Does that answer that? Yes, sir. Yeah. So water has become, so I think who's flopping around, water has become issue number six. So after you deal with all the other issues, water has bubbled up, no pun intended, to be part of those six things that has to be solved. And the reason is because the freshwater aquifers are all underneath the West Bank. So if you are a Palestinian, in order to dig a well, you have to get a permit from the Kogat, which is the military body that administers the West Bank. And it's got to go through you know, a dozen different individual agencies that all have to stamp approve, 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 and as you can imagine, it almost never does, right? So the average water consumption of Israelis is about seven times what it is in the West Bank. So uh, that, is, that is the rising issue that folks are beginning to talk about, but it's very difficult to deal with because it's all under there. There's another aquifer down by Gaza, but it's been over-pumped, and so now it's very salinated, and it's essentially of no use almost anymore. We'll take one more, and we'll cut you loose. Yes, ma'am. Um, I had a question about Jerusalem, I guess. Um, on the other map that you had, it had the, U, um, the UN kind of administrating the area around Jerusalem. It might be a stupid thing or a thought. Like, why wouldn't they just make that more of like a neutral territory because it's a holy land for like so many different peoples? Like, why wouldn't they, like the Vatican, in a, right. like essentially, where it's a neutral territory so that people can actually go in and out Palestinians and Jews, so it's not regulated by uh, Jerusalem side or Palestinian side. Is right. that, has that been something that they've debated at all? It is. It's part of the deal. It, that's effectively how it works even now. You know, it's technically administered um, by the Palestinian Authority, and it's, it's a waqf. It's a, um, what's the English word for waqf? Waqf. It's like a set-aside territory, an inheritance Yes. Yeah. So they administer it, but effectively everybody in normal circumstances can go in and out like that. Creating an, an international zone is, is one of the ideas that's on the table for that. The nitty gritty is in how it actually works, um, but it could very well work. All right. We'll stop there so you can go do homework and all that, but thanks for hanging out and good questions. We'll see you later. <laughs>